Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshaldon, and today we'll learn more about John Diefenbaker and Lester Pearson, the impact of their policy achievements as well as their bitter rivalry on the history of Canada. John Ibbotson is one of Canada's best-known and most respected journalists, having previously served as both Washington and Ottawa bureau chiefs and, since 2015, as writer-at-large with the Globe Mail. He is also the author of Stephen Harper, the award-winning biography of Canada's 22nd Prime Minister. Today, we are going to talk about his most recent biographical history, The Duel, Diefenbaker, Pearson, and the Making of Modern Canada, published by Signal, an imprint of McClellan and Stewart, and published in 2023. John, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Pleasure to be here, Greg. Of course, the duel you're talking about in the book is the duel between Diefenbaker and Pearson in their respective roles as prime ministers and as leaders of the official opposition between 1958 and 1968. However, you go quite a bit further than that. You explore in parallel, and I would say in considerable detail, their respective life stories from the time of their births in the late 19th century until their deaths in the 1970s. So what motivated you originally to research and write this book? There were a couple of things, um, maybe even three. The first is that I had over the years become increasingly convinced as I researched other stories and news stories and came across stuff that, oh, the Diefenbaker government initiated this, or the Diefenbaker government was responsible for that, or this happened on the Diefenbaker government's watch. And that contradicted the narrative that I had grown up with, the narrative that we all learned from Peter Newman's Renegade in Power, that Diefenbaker led a failed administration, that he was a wildly erratic man, indecisive, temperamental. He was, by the way, all of those things. And that his government uh, was a failure. But his government was not a failure. His government was actually a considerable success. And many of the things that Lester Pearson um, achieved as prime minister, he was able to achieve because he was building on the foundations already laid by the Diefenbaker government. So I thought we needed to reassess the Diefenbaker government, not to diminish uh, Pearson's accomplishments, but to put them in the context of what was really a decade of progress by both prime ministers. And then the second thing was... They were just a great story. I mean, this was the the only time in our country's history when two men battled each other for 10 years uh, for control of the levers of power of the federal government. Um, they came to cordially despise each other. Uh, there were some rollicking good tales uh, during those years, everything from a, a bank scandal to um, a shady lady who was sleeping with half the deep breaker cabinet, it seemed. Um, so there was a story to tell there as well. And then the third thing you alluded to, uh, I made a point of not beginning uh, their prime ministerships until I was halfway through the book. I wanted to talk about who they were and what shaped them and what was shaping our country uh, while they were growing up and, and moving into positions of power and then finally 
into leadership. Uh, so it was a story of Canada as much as a story of Diefen Baker and Pearson, the progress of Canada from a Victorian, almost uh, still uh, colonial existence in the 1890s to Canada as an important power grappling with the issue of nuclear weapons in the 1960s. Well, it'd be hard to find two Canadians so different in personality and outlook than Diefen Baker and Pearson. So I was wondering if you could just describe quickly their most important differences. Yes. Uh, Pearson enjoyed hockey and Diefenbaker likes to fish. <laughs> Diefenbaker grew up uh, a bullied child. He grew up a child uh, of a family that was rather poor. Um, his last name was an object of derision, believe it or not. Having a German name in those days uh, was uh, not an asset, indeed, a considerable liability in Canada. Um, as a result, he never formed many strong friendships. And the one pursuit that he loved more than anything else was to go fishing, alone or with one or two friends. Um, and, of course, fishing is essentially a solitary pursuit. Uh, Mike Diefenmaker was the son of a minister, uh, also itinerant, uh, traveling around from, from town to town and village to village. But he was the kind of guy who always fit in. He was the kind of guy who was looking for a team to join and eventually a team to lead. He was a great natural athlete. But he also just had a great natural ability to get along with people uh, and, to, and to have people believe in him and to trust him. Those turned out to be powerful assets as he was progressing in his career. So essentially, one was solitary, and also it has to be said, untrusting, later in life, somewhat paranoid perhaps. Um, the other was just naturally a joiner and a leader. One of the similarities that I picked up from, from your book is that both men were extremely ambitious, even if Pearson was more careful to hide his desire to someday be the Prime Minister of Canada. So why and when did both men set their sights on becoming PM? Well, famously, <clears throat> Diefenbaker as a child one day declared to his mother, someday I will be Prime Minister. Um, and, and he was quite serious about it. And he, to his credit, never lost the sight of that possibility through a career in which he was mostly unsuccessful. Uh, he ran five times and lost uh, five times before finally getting into the House of Commons in 1940. He was immediately consigned to uh, to the, the back reaches of the party because he did not get along with the, with the leadership. He, in fact, um, became leader really as a result of a fluke. The uh, George Drew became very ill. Um, they needed someone quickly. And the decision was throw Diefenbaker in there. He'll lose the next election. Uh, and we can go looking for somebody else. And then, of course, he did not lose the next election. So he had pursued the job his entire life. But in fact, for most of his life, had no prospects of ever actually achieving it. It was a remarkable act of faith on his part. Um, I don't think Pearson saw the prime ministership as a possibility until the late 1940s. He had entered external affairs. He had done very well in external affairs. The Second World War, he ascended with great speed from an aide to the high commissioner in Britain to the ambassador of the United States himself, um, a name that the Americans knew, one of the first Canadians who really became a household name in the United States, then winner of the Nobel Peace Prize for the Suez, uh, the canal crisis. Um, and somewhere in the, there, I would say probably in the late 40s and the early 50s, when he stopped being a public servant and started being, having a cabinet minister, it was probably in his head that if things fell the right way, he might be prime minister. So both men had complicated, uh, I would say even difficult marriages, uh, at least Diefenbaker's marriage with his first wife, Edna Brower, and of course uh, Pearson's uh, 
famous, some would say infamous marriage uh, with Marianne Moody. I mean, what impact did these marriages have on both men in their respective political careers? The um, first marriage of Diefenbakers was was uh, an important one. They were very much in love. And she was also very gregarious, outgoing, loved to party. Uh, Diefenbaker was none of these things. Uh, She helped teach him to connect with people. Uh, His famous ability to remember names and faces was something that Edna taught him. Uh, he, He learned it from her. Uh, she uh, needed probably more than he could give uh, as midlife arrived. They were childless. They ended up, I think, both regretting that. Um, she was worried about uh, her figure and her, and her attractiveness. Uh, I don't think Diefenbaker could give her the kind of support uh, that she needed at that stage. She ended up um, receiving psychiatric treatment. Um, but despite it all, I think through all of it, uh, they loved each other. Um, and her death uh, of leukemia uh, was something that uh, caused him great grief. I think Marion and and, um, and Mike had um, a power couple marriage. Uh, she was loyal to him and supported him throughout his career, but she had ambitions of her own, and I think always chafed at the fact that those those ambitions were denied. A lot of people found her a difficult woman. Her own children, uh, her own daughter at least, uh, found her um, a, a rather cold mother. But I think part of it may have to do with the fact that uh, for all of Mike Pearson's great achievements, um, his wife was denied much of what she had hoped to achieve herself. Um, Marion once said that there, behind every uh, successful man, there's a surprised woman. And I think there's a bit of bitterness in that, uh, uh, that statement. But again, I think in the end, they loved each other too uh, throughout, the, throughout that marriage, despite uh, its ups and downs. Diefenbaker's road to the leadership the progressive conservatives was torturous in the extreme i would say and he was never really accepted by many within the party's establishment uh can you tell us why and to what extent do you think diefenbaker's personalities and foibles contributed to this estrangement sure diefenbaker arrived in 1940 uh in the midst of what turned out to be decades of failure. The progressive conservative party um, lost election after election after election after election from 1935 until 1957, 22 years of unremitting failure. Why did they lose? Because essentially the Tories were Bay Street. It was the party of Ontario, the party of wealthy businessmen, um, the party of privilege. The Liberal Party was the party of immigrants, um, the party of Quebec, the party of the West. Hard to believe, but in those days, the Liberal Party completely dominated the West because the West was full of immigrants and immigrants supported the Liberal Party. Diefenbaker was as estranged from that power structure as the rest of the country. He was himself someone who was raised poor. Uh, His father uh, was uh, an itinerant teacher. Um, They had a farm in Saskatchewan that did not do well at all. Uh, Diefenbaker grew up around poor people as a poor person. And so when he finally arrived in Ottawa, um, he looked uh, at the leadership of the party as uh, arrogant and elitist and <clears throat> reconciled to failure. And they saw him, something they'd never seen before, a conservative from the prairies, um, uh, and someone who was uh, outside their power structures and, sh- and clearly someone who had no desire to become part of their power structures. And beyond that, Diefenbaker was, as I said, a solitary man, a temperamental man, 
a man not prone to trusting. Um, and he came to the leadership late in life. If he had been in a government, let's say in cabinet, or if he'd had a term or two as leader of the official opposition, he might have learned the skills of managing a team, of managing a caucus. Any prime minister will tell you the single toughest part of the job is managing the caucus. Um, and, and he could not manage his. So he succeeded, and I maintain he succeeded as a prime minister more in spite of himself in that respect uh, than because of it. Much of it had to do with who he was, and much of it had to do with the fact that he came to the office late in life. Now, in contrast, Pearson's journey to the liberal leadership was uh, smooth sailing compared to Diefenbaker's. But Pearson's years as leaders were difficult. In fact, they were almost as difficult at times as what Diefenbaker experienced during his leadership. Why was this, and was Pearson mainly a victim of circumstance the times, or were there features of his personality that really exacerbated these tensions? Well, let's start with the personality first. Uh, Lester Pearson, everybody called him Mike, including himself, um, was a person who was well-liked, beloved, really, uh, by people. Um, But he had very little understanding of Canada. He had spent much of his adult life outside the country in uh, various missions um, in Europe and the United States. Um, He had transitioned seamlessly from the Undersecretary of State for External Affairs to Secretary of State for External Affairs, so closely were the liberals and the bureaucracy tied to each other that it was not unheard of, in fact, not even all that unusual for senior officials to to enter cabinet. But as External Affairs Minister, he was again um, concerned with things overseas. So he was ill-equipped when he became leader um, in January of 1958 to understand the zeitgeist of the country. It was not a place that he had known as well as, as, as he might have. As well, and even more important, the Liberal Party was utterly sclerotic. It had been in power since 1935. Um, it had just suffered a very surprising defeat, uh, surprising to Liberals at least, Um, the party was determined to get back into power as quickly as possible. This conservative interregnum must not be tolerated. Um, And so he he allowed himself to to make a terrible mistake, essentially forcing an election um, that, of course, he lost very badly. He could could have and must have been tempted to, at that point, simply take escapes and go home. Uh, But instead, he decided to stay on and rebuild the party. He did a very good job. Um, he, re- he renewed its fundraising. He brought in Walter Gordon to, to modernize it. And he hosted the famous Kingston Conference in which young um, and, and very progressive intellectuals laid out a new governing program for the party. By the time the Liberal Party uh, arrived for the 62 election, it had been transformed um, and was far more modern and forward-looking um, than it had been in the past. Uh, and he deserves, Pearson deserves full credit for that. And what you're referring to is really the reinvention of the Liberal Party after its uh, defeat in 1958 by Diefenbaker. But uh, of course, the CCF had to do the same as well. It had to reinvent itself as well, both in response to this enormous defeat. What I'd like to know is. You describe how Pearson responded to the challenge of rebuilding the party, but how did he respond to the challenge of governing after uh, 1963? Uh, He governed well, uh, although he faced exactly the same kind of cabinet rebellion uh, that Diefenbaker faced and was barely able to keep cabinet together. The government almost fell apart um, during the 65 to 68 period. 
but he knew to delegate authority. Uh, Dave Baker did, did delegate as well, too. I mean, much of what I'm talking about in the book are the major achievements um, in healthcare, in immigration, in justice reform, in human rights, in international relations, that both the Diefenbaker government and the Pearson government achieved. They did that because they had powerful cabinet ministers, good cabinet ministers. Um, it was as much the achievement, and, and advisors as well, it was, it was as much the achievement of Ellen Fairclough, the first woman cabinet minister who Diefenbaker put into immigration, and who cleaned up the immigration department, um, who, which was the, the, the first and major step towards the point system. Um, it was uh, as much Tom Kent, uh, um, Pearson's uh, advisor, who helped craft the, the uh, Canada Pension Plan and Medicare. They were both good, uh, well, they were good as, as debatable. They were both chairman of the board, uh, presided over, over a highly competent board uh, of powerful cabinet ministers, able cabinet ministers, that, that did good things. And again, much of what Pearson achieved, he achieved because already the groundwork had been laid. Um, let me give you two very quick examples if I can. Diefenbaker initiated universal hospital insurance and then established a Royal Commission on Healthcare and put his very good friend Emmett Hall in charge of that commission, knowing exactly what Hall was going to recommend, which was universal public Medicare. When that uh, report came down, Pearson was prime minister, he implemented the Hall report. Another one, the Diefenbaker government fought for and won the right to hold an exposition in Montreal in 1967 on Canada Centennial. Pearson cut the ribbon. Both governments, uh, though, deserve credit for launching and building and, and then creating the highly successful Expo 67. The book is rife with examples like that. And th those are the areas of continuity. And what areas did Diefenbaker leave an important legacy where he truly was unique in what he achieved? I think one would have to have been in uh, uh, on the question of human rights. So first of all, he was the author of the Bill of Rights, uh, the first document that laid out the rights that Canadian citizens had uh, that had never been done before. The Supreme uh, Court gutted it, unfortunately, but the basis of uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, that Pierre Trudeau established um, is found in the Bill of Rights. Uh, and, and many have said that uh, the Diefenbaker's Bill of Rights laid the foundation for the Charter. So there was that. As well, John Diefenbaker had always resist, resented uh, the second or third or fourth class treatment that First Nations and Métis uh, received when, when he was growing up among them in Saskatchewan. Uh, First Nations received the right to vote in federal elections on his watch. Um, and finally, uh, during a Commonwealth crisis, Canada was the first of the old dominions, let us say it, the white dominions, um, to stand up and declare that it opposed apartheid in South Africa and that South Africa should not be permitted uh, to be in the Commonwealth uh, while it continued to practice apartheid. When Nelson Mandela was freed from prison um, uh, at the end of that long tenure, uh, he came uh, almost immediately to Canada uh, where he addressed Parliament and where he thanked John Diefenbaker and Brian Mulroney as two stalwart supporters and Canada as a stalwart supporter uh, of the rights of black South Africans. I think Diefenbaker can take uh, a share of the credit in that uh, situation as well. Indeed, these are really major achievements. So why did it all go so badly for Diefenbaker by the early 1960s? Um, 
by the way, it was not because he made the decision to cancel the Avro Arrow. That was the correct decision. People still <laughs> rage about it, but it was the correct decision. And in fact, the Saint Laurent government had already decided to cancel the Arrow uh, and would have canceled it had they not lost the 57 election. Diefenbaker did, however, get into a terrible fight with the governor of the Bank of Canada, James Coyne. He also got into a big fight with uh, John F. Kennedy uh, over an earlier promise to accept uh, nuclear-tipped weapons on Canadian soil as part of the air defense system. Diefenbaker then became uh, increasingly reluctant to allow nuclear weapons on Canadian soil. Um, Mike Pearson changed the liberal position and said they would accept the weapons. So in the 1963 election, uh, John Diefenbaker was fighting the Kennedy administration every bit as much as he was fighting the liberals um, and lost to them every bit as much as, as he lost to Pearson. Now, I'd like to uh, ask you about uh, Diefenbaker and Pearson as political campaigners. It seems to me that Diefenbaker was extremely effective as a political campaigner, maybe one of the Canada's best political campaigners of the 20th century. And in contrast, Pearson was actually an extremely poor campaigner. I'd like you to just give us some flavor for their respective styles. And then I'd like to know if the PCs actually would have lost without Diefenbaker at the helm in 1962. And I wonder whether the Liberals could have gained a majority in 1963 if only Pearson had been more effective or perhaps if Diefenbaker had not been around. If you haven't, uh, do uh, go onto YouTube and uh, Google John Diefenbaker. He was a great orator. He loved um, parallel construction. He loved the cadences of the Gettysburg Address. Um, he loved the King James Bible. Uh, he loved the way Churchill wrote and spoke, and he wrote and spoke the way Churchill wrote and spoke. Um, people, a lot of people, including my own family, thought he was one of the greatest orators uh, of our time. Um, Beyond that, though, he had a connection with people. As I said, he grew up poor and among poor people. As a lawyer, uh, he defended the rights of, of the poor. He was the only prime minister to sit in a, in a jail cell listening to women sobbing as they explained why she had to kill him or he would have killed her or why she uh, buried her baby and told no one that it was dead. Um, he had a bond with people. He was a populist and it was an honest bond. And that showed up during campaign periods. Mike Pearson had none of those things. Uh, he had always moved in the halls of power from Oxford to the United Nations. Um, and he also he had a slight lisp and he liked bow ties, which is strange. Um, and uh, so when he was on the campaign trail, by his own admission, he was an ineffective campaigner. Could he have won in 62 without Diefenbaker on the trail? Well, of course, it was it was the, the uh, you know, upsets of the last year that... that cost Diefenbaker that election. Essentially, it was the coin affair that cost Diefenbaker the election, his effort to fire the governor of the Bank of Canada, um, his failed effort. Um, so you could you could say anyone other than Diefenbaker might have won a second majority government because they wouldn't have made the mistakes that Diefenbaker made. But certainly, once you were on the campaign trail, Diefenbaker sloughed all that off and became the great campaigner. Um, and, uh, and was able to hang on in 62. I think he denied the Liberals a majority government in 63, and I think he denied them a majority government again in 65. Right. Can you describe the actions, though, that came later in terms of both losing the leadership of their parties or having to give up the leadership of their parties? In some sense, both men were kicked to the curb 
by their respective parties. Uh, why was this and uh, what impact did it have for both men to leave their respective parties as leader? The short answer is they were both old. We're talking about 1966, 67, 68. Uh, these are the years of the Vietnam War. These are the years of flower power. These are the years of the, of the great demonstrations in the United States. These are the years of the assassinations of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Um, it was a time for young people. The boomers were just getting into their teens and, and in, their, in their 20s. And these old men were outside their time. Um, and they wanted renewal they wanted change and that's why when Pierre Trudeau came along it was a mania you know it, it, I, I lived through it it was it truly was Trudeau mania I don't think Pearson um, regretted leaving uh, in fact after the 65 election he offered to resign and was told that he had to stay on um, he died a few years after he left office of cancer I think and he was ill through much of the second term um, he seemed to have a perpetual cold so um, I think when he decided to step down in, at, at Christmas of 67, um, he stepped down happily. Uh, he was ready to go. Uh, there are some people who think he was being pushed up by the party, but I, from what I can tell, um, he was happy to go. Diefenbaker had to be uh, hauled out of there kicking and screaming. He had just become married to the job of leader of the Conservative Party, and he believed uh, that only he uh, could could lead the party and that no one else was qualified to lead it to get it. It was a bit of a, a messianic complex, a bit of a paranoia that, that, uh, that afflicted him. Uh, and um, as we did talk about in the book, essentially there was a coup launched against him inside the party led by Dalton Camp. Um, and that coup brought him down. Uh, but he went down kicking and screaming. <laughs> he had to be dragged out of that office almost physically. Now you say that the most important difference between the two men lay in their respective abilities to grow. Pearson could and did. Diefenbaker could not. Pearson, I understand completely in what you say about him. But why was Diefenbaker so unable to grow while in office? Because in my experience, when I watch prime ministers or presidents, I see them change and often change quite dramatically during their times in office. Why did this not happen to Diefenbaker? Let's say three things. First of all, as we've alluded to, he arrived late uh, in his 60s. He had never been in a position of leadership before that. He won the leadership. Um, at the end of 1956 and was prime minister uh, by the summer of 1957. So there was no learning curve there, no, no, no opportunity to learn on a gentle curve there. Um, and finally, and, and the younger people may, will find this hard to believe, but there was still a tremendous attachment to the British Empire. And he was himself deeply attached to the empire and what everything the empire stood for. He couldn't see that by the end of the Second World War, the empire was in terminal decline and that Britain's future lay with the Union uh, with Europe rather than leading uh, the Commonwealth. Uh, I think Diefenbaker fought harder to preserve the Commonwealth uh, than the British did. Um, and, um, and he never accepted the, the reality that there was only one great power in the West now, and that was the United States. So he, he simply couldn't realize, couldn't accept the fact that times had changed. Well, before you go, John, I need to ask you one more question. Are you working on any biographies for the future, or is this going to be your final political biography? I was 18 when my first uh, play was published. Uh, it was a very small publisher, and it was a very bad play. Uh, I have been working... Uh, 
nonstop. Uh, I just write. It's my life. It's what I've been doing ever since. And I've uh, I've decided which the next book will be. I have a couple of candidates in mind, uh, but um, I'm already pacing around, uh, looking at things uh, in the house that need to get done because I'm not writing, and I would much rather be writing than pacing around and looking at things that need to get done. Well, we look forward to your next book, and hopefully uh, we'll have an opportunity to interview you on that book uh, for this podcast. So, John, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure, Greg. Thank you. My guest today was John Ibbotson. His book, The Duel, Diefenbaker, Pearson, and the Making of Modern Canada, was published by Signal, an imprint of McClellan and Stewart. It was published in 2023. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We also want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill Queen's University Press, University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview is recorded on December 12, 2023, and is supported by a producer, Jessica Schmidt, and the University of Toronto Press Journal team.